0: Invite you to take your copy of God's Word. I hope you have it with you. Uh, if not, there ought to be one either under your seat or under the seat in front of you, or look on with a friendly person sitting to your left or your right. Open your copy of God's Word to uh, Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. Well, last week we began uh, our month-long series in the month of uh, January, revisiting our mission and vision as a church. Last week, we looked specifically at our mission statement, our mission statement, which is printed on the front of your worship guide, which is that First Baptist West Albuquerque exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Mission statements. Uh, as many of you have probably encountered in churches or in your corporate workplace or wherever the case may be, mission statements serve to clarify the, the purpose of an organization, the, the point on the horizon toward which we all are moving. Uh, that, that point on the horizon that, that we as a church of Jesus Christ are moving toward, are steadfastly pursuing, is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that is the direction we are walking together as a church. Mission statements give us that point on the horizon to walk toward, but vision statements do a a, a little bit different task. Vision statements, rather than giving us a point to look forward to, to to guide our steps or or, or to direct our lives, uh, vision statements rather serve as kind of a, a way to give us a picture of what we'll look like when we get to that point on the horizon. When we meet Christ in eternity or as we grow as a church, we want to look uh, like a certain thing. We expect that we would uh, uh, take on certain attitudes or characteristics as we fulfill our mission. Now, our vision statement has three uh, points to it, and, and there are three words that all rhyme, and hopefully it's easy for you to memorize. Know, grow, and go. We, we, as we fulfill this mission of glorifying God by making disciples of Jesus, as we do that, we will become a diverse family of believers who know Christ as Lord through his word, who grow, who help one another to grow in obedience and maturity in Jesus, and who go to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we'll look like as we uh, uh, pursue or fulfill this mission. A vision statement gives us that picture of what we'll be when we get there, and it also provides for us um, uh, guardrails along the way as we go so that we don't get off track. So that if ever in our, our pursuit of glorifying God by making disciples of Jesus, we begin looking to other sources, other ways of knowing God other than his word, or knowing Christ or salvation other than his word, we'll know we've gone off track. If we ever forget that, that we are to help one another grow in obedience and maturity in Christ and we begin to take on this individualistic approach to Christianity that it's just Jesus and me and I don't need the help of anyone else and I don't need to help anyone else follow Jesus, well, we'll know we've gone off track. If ever in our, our efforts to fulfill this mission to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus and the power of Holy Spirit, we stop being missional, we stop sharing the gospel, that that's no longer a priority for us, well, then we know we've gone off track. And so our, our vision statement helps us to, to stay on the, on the right course as we fulfill this mission that God has given us. Now, today in the next two Sundays, uh, we're going to look at, from God's Word, the, the underpinnings, if you will, for our, uh, the, the three various aspects of our vision statement. And today we're going to look specifically at the first one. Know that we make disciples who know Christ as Lord through His Word. We make disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word. And we are becoming, if we will, disciples who know better Christ as Lord through his word. As we look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, I would hope that that in response to it, that we would begin to orient our, our lives, every aspect of our lives, around the authoritative and sufficient word of God. Now, as we turn to God's authoritative and sufficient word, let's all stand together as we read and are shaped by it second timothy chapter 3 verse 16 the apostle paul writes to the young pastor timothy all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work the word of the lord you may be seated we make disciples at First Baptist West Albuquerque to glorify God and the power of the Holy Spirit, disciples who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior through His Word, through the Bible. Why do we turn to Scripture? Why, why is Scripture such a, a foundational part of everything that we do in church? You've probably noticed over the last year or year and a half or so uh, that very often we are trying to infuse all of our life together, at least in worship, in this room on Sunday mornings and in our Bible study classes on Sunday mornings with the Word, that everything is revolving around this book. Why? Not because it's just a good book, not, not because it's been, you know, an historical uh, bestseller for the last 2,000 years, not because it's particularly interesting or the binding is nice or the, the, you know, the gold leafing on the side of the pages looks pretty. No, we turn to this word not because it's aesthetically pleasing, but because it's God's word, because we believe that God has spoken to us through it. This encouragement from Paul to young Timothy reminds us of two things. It reminds us first that Scripture is our highest authority. Scripture is our highest authority. And there's at least one reason why we can say that. Scripture is our highest authority because it is breathed out by God himself. Paul says in verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. In knowing that Scripture is breathed out by God, it is simultaneously two other things. First of all, we can say that Scripture, because it is breathed out by God, is from God. He is the source of Scripture. Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God, and by this we understand that every word of the Scriptures is God's Word. We understand that by His Holy Spirit, God inspired and superintended every single word that was written by His prophets, by the psalmists, by the apostles. The Apostle Peter confirms that the Holy Spirit was working through those who wrote the Scriptures when he says in 1 Peter 1, 12 that the Holy Spirit was indicating to the prophets the coming of the Messiah. Peter writes in his second letter, 2 Peter one twenty one, that all of the prophets of the Old Testament were, quote, carried along by the Holy Spirit. We saw even last week, and hopefully I was able to defend well from Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is not just some force of God, but that the Holy Spirit is a uh, a co-equal and co-eternal person of God with the Father and the Son. So these words that we have that are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God are given to us by God himself through human authors. Now because we can say with confidence that the Bible is a book that is from God, we can also infer that this book, God's Word, these, these uh, small portable libraries of God's revelation to us, that this, this book carries authority. Because it's from God, it carries some weight. If God has spoken, and that through the Bible, then His words have, have meaning that need to be heard and listened to, and dare I say, obeyed and submitted to. The Word that comes from God demands our attention and ultimately our obedience If the supreme being, the greatest being in all of the cosmos or outside of it has spoken, ought we not to listen? This very first characteristic of what the Bible is, that the Bible is from God, helps us immensely as we endeavor to study it. For we know that the Bible being from God, that when we come to it, we are coming face to face with the God who has spoken the very world that we live in into existence. And also, at the same time, that the God who created everything has condescended. He has come down. He has, he has in some way limited himself to our understanding in order to speak to us, to tell us something about himself. We ought to listen then to his words. We ought to heed his words. We ought to obey them. Because this book is from God. Scripture is our highest authority because it is inspired by God. And in saying that this word is inspired by God, we're saying two things. First, that it is from God. And secondly, that it is ultimately about God. That the chief subject, the primary character in all of these pages is not you or me or the Apostle Paul or Peter or Moses or Isaiah or David, but God. This book is first and foremost about God. Now, there are several things that we can know about God apart from the Bible. There are things that we can learn about who God is apart from reading scripture. The natural world itself, the created world around us tells us something of God's power and nature. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. That is the, the people of the world because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That is to say, we can look around the world, look at the world around us, and we can learn at least two things about the kind of God that God is. First of all, that he is eternally powerful, that he has power to create. And secondly, that he is divine. He, his existence is different than ours. He exists outside of what he has created. But other than those two things, we can know nothing, uh, virtually nothing personally about who God is. If we rely only upon what we can learn about God in nature, we will have nothing of what we need to know of who God is personally in order to be saved from our sin. To know God personally and to know him redemptively we must hear from God personally. He's got to speak to us. We can't just rely upon the reflections of His glory in the world to lead us to salvation. We need clearer instruction than that. And this personal revelation, this, personal, this clear instruction of who God is, comes to us in His Holy Spirit-inspired Word. Amen. Now, while the scriptures on every page tell us about God through what He says and what He does and the people that He interacts with and the people that He works through... God goes even further to reveal himself more clearly and more intimately, not just in his word, but in his son, Jesus. The writer of Hebrews makes this point for us wonderfully clear when he says in the first few verses of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 through the first part of 3. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke to us through his word. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, these verses are to say that Jesus Christ is the very physical manifestation and personal revelation of God to mankind. Do you want to know what God the Father is uh, is like? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know what the Father's heart is for his creation? Look to Jesus. Do do you want to know how God has sought to redeem and to rescue people from their sin and to relationship with himself? Look to Jesus. Anything you want to know about who God is and how he acts, look to Jesus, because you'll find the answer there. As the perfect personal revelation of God, Jesus is the high point. He's the climax. He is the summit of God's spoken word. All that that is in this book, all that this book tells us about God is ultimately leading us to the person of Jesus. Because of this, every other truth of God revealed in the pages of Scripture is either leading us up to and and preparing us uh, for Jesus, uh, speaking there of the Old Testament, or pointing our attention back to Jesus and how to live in light of the truth of who he is as the Son of God who takes on flesh. This incarnate Son of God, Jesus, whose sinless life was given in sacrifice for spiritually bankrupt sinners like me and like you, and whose resurrection from the dead provides justification with God, this incarnate Son of God, this Jesus, this Word of God made flesh, is the very center of God's special revelation to us. Jesus is the very center of God's spoken and written Word to us. Jesus is how God is personally known. And all that is knowable about God can be known in Jesus. So we say as a church that that we endeavor to make disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word. Why through his word? Because only this word is breathed out by God. Only this word is authoritative for, for all things that are true and necessary for being saved from our sin and living in righteousness, living in holiness to follow Jesus 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All scriptures breathed out by God teaches us that Scripture alone leads us to know God in truth through faith in His Son. Amen. Only this book leads us to know God in truth through faith in His Son. Stop a moment and just, and if you have your copy of God's Word and you're holding it in your hands, just keep it there. If it's in your lap, maybe pick it up. And, and just, just think for a moment about what it is that we are holding. Well, I have a lot of books in my house and in my office. A lot of them are, are maybe even of, are, are bound in better quality than, than the Bible that I'm holding before you. Some of them uh, are, are maybe uh, older in terms of printing, but certainly none in terms of origination uh, than this book. But only this book, only this book tells me about who God is and how I can know Him, and how I can be known by Him. Now, I've got on my shelves lots of books about theology that have you know, delved into the truths of this, of this book and, and pulled out you know, uh, uh, maybe important uh, things that we ought to know or whatever, but those books don't lead me to knowledge uh, of God and faith in His Son, Jesus, but this one does. Even all of the best books that men and women write about this book don't compare to the power and don't have the authority that this book has because this book is God's word breathed out by him. The others are not. This word of God that we hold in our hands this morning is at once both light in a dark room and a lens that corrects our vision. As God speaks, he shines light into darkness, illuminating the contours of the world so that we might not grope around in darkness. But even in our sin, we cannot see uh, rightly as we ought to. Even though God illuminates some things for us to see, our sin still keeps us from seeing clearly. And so God speaks in his word to bring into clear focus the beauty of the truth and the trappings of sin that we might embrace the former, that we might embrace the truth of who God is. And that we might be saved from the latter, that we might be saved from the trappings from the death that our own sin deserves. Friends, we believe that the Word of God is true and that it alone leads us to know God truly. If I can borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, not only because we can see the Word of God, not only because we can read it and hold it in our hands, we don't believe that this is true just because we have copies of it, but we believe that this is true because by this book we see everything else clearly. This book not only shows us who God is and who we are, but this book helps us to understand rightly the world around us and to make sense of, of what, what seems to be chaos and pain and difficulty in the world around us. This book from God is authoritative because God has breathed it out. It is from him, it is about him, and is the only source of knowledge by which we can come to know, the uh, only source of information by which we can come to know Jesus rightly as Lord, Savior, incarnate Son of God. Scripture is authoritative. It's our highest authority. But Paul shows us also through God's word that Scripture is sufficient. It's authoritative and it is sufficient. That is, it is enough. It is capable for uh, making disciples. Paul tells us that Scripture is sufficient in the sense that it is profitable. You see that in verse 16. It is profitable. And Paul tells us it's profitable for at least four things. That word profitable means beneficial, helpful, uh, um, uh, of, of uh, good and necessary uh, power to, to do these things. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul says scripture is profitable for teaching. That word teaching means instruction in a formal setting. Maybe like what we're doing here this morning is, as uh, I'm endeavoring to teach God's Word to you uh, in, in similar fashion to what happens in our Sunday school classes as God's Word is being taught or maybe other small group Bible studies throughout the week. The, the work that we do with our children when we read God's Word and help to explain it to them. The Word of God is, su- is sufficient for teaching, profitable for teaching. Scripture is beneficial for formal Christian instruction about the person of God, about his plan for salvation, and about uh, growth in holiness. This word teaches us those things, and it is helpful for us to uh, use the word. Not just helpful, but this word is sufficient for teaching those things to others. This word is also profitable for reproof. That word reproof is not a word that we use often in uh, probably our 21st century language. Some of your translations may have this word as rebuke. It is profitable for rebuke. That word reproof uh, does not mean only to tell someone that they have acted wrongly or spoken wrongly. It means at least that. But the word reproof means to, to show someone that they have acted or spoken or are thinking wrongly with the evidence of that wrongdoing. So reproof is not me just uh, uh, saying to someone, hey, what you're doing is wrong and sinful there. It's me saying what you're doing is wrong and sinful because in God's word, we know that God is this way and the way that you're acting is contrary to who God says that he is. Reproof points out a fault, points out a wrongdoing and gives evidence for why it is wrong. This word is profitable for teaching, for reproof. It's also helpful, beneficial for correction. The word correction here, can mean literally to raise up again or to reform. It is used in this sense to bring uh, errant or false wrong teaching, wrong doctrine into alignment with God's revealed will and God's revealed character. Likewise, this word correction can carry the sense of reorienting one's ethical actions to be conformed to the intention and purpose of God that the way we are acting lines up with how God has commanded us to act or lines up with the character that God has intended for us to have. This word is helpful for that. Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof. It's profitable for correction and finally for training in righteousness. Now this phrase we can understand to mean providing instruction with the intent of forming righteous and holy habits of behavior. Right? This word is helpful for forming our actions, forming our lives, to be like that of Christ, to not only to show us what is right, but also to show us how to do what is right in, the, in faith in Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I think there's a really interesting progression in these words that Paul uses to define what Scripture is profitable for, what it's beneficial, what it's helpful for, right? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, there's, there's almost a, an evangelistic sort of progression in the profitability of Scripture. Do you see it? It is profitable for teaching. That is for showing people the truth of who God is and what sin is and what our sin has done to our relationship with God. Scripture is helpful for pointing out those truths. At the same time, it's helpful for reproof. It's helpful for showing to those who don't yet know Christ by faith because they've not yet recognized their sin that they do, in fact, have sin in their lives and just where in their lives it is. It's profitable for reproof, for saying you are living, you're walking in, in sin because you're apart from God, you don't have faith in Jesus, you're living according to your own way, and Scripture shows us that that is sinful. Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, also for correction, As we share the gospel, God's word, with those who do not believe, teaching them about who God is, showing them that they are sinful, showing them uh, evidentiary uh, uh, information from scripture that they have sin, we, we can also lead them to correction, to say, this is how you get your life right. This is how this relationship that you broke by your sin is corrected. By placing faith in Jesus. This is how Jesus raises you up to new new life and a new kind of living, by placing faith in him. And the Bible tells us that, friends. It is also helpful for training in righteousness. Once a person has learned who they are, Are by their sin and who God is, and the the nature of their relationship, which is broken with God by sin. Once they admit or are brought to recognize that they themselves have sin and see the way to have their lives corrected by trusting in Jesus, God's own Son, who died for our sins and was raised from the dead, by giving their lives to Jesus in faith, they are now made ready to be trained in righteousness, to be brought up as disciples. And how is it that we train people to live and to walk according to the way that that God has, according to the purpose for which God has saved us in Christ and according to God's purposes for us in this life? How do we train them to live? With this word. It's profitable for all of it. It's beneficial for all of it. It is sufficient, meaning this word alone will help us to do exactly what God intends for us to do. Scripture is sufficient for making disciples. It's profitable for teaching reproof. Correction and training in righteousness. And this word is sufficient for something else. It is sufficient for completing the believer. For making the believer competent in at least two ways. Paul says at the end of, uh, in verse 16, uh, verse 17, excuse me. He says, uh, the word is profitable for all these things that the man of God, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul shows us here that this word, the Bible is sufficient for completing the believer in salvation. If we were just go a couple of verses before our our passage today in 1 Timothy 3 verses 14 and 15, Paul says to the young pastor Timothy there He says, as for you, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. There he's speaking of the scriptures. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This word is sufficient to complete the believer in salvation. Paul's words to Timothy in these verses that precede our text this morning demonstrate this beautiful reality for us. The word of God, these scriptures, this book that we're holding in our laps this morning is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This book that we call the Bible is constantly shedding light on the most important need that we have and most important issue that we face in this life. How to be right with God. This book addresses that most important thing. Now, if you don't think that the most important thing in your life is to know how to be right with God, your, your life is, is completely, you're, you're moving in a completely different direction than Scripture is wanting to take you. And so if you're coming to Scripture wanting to know something more than how to be right with God or, or, or before how to be right with God, you're going to miss the, big, the biggest point of, uh, of Scripture, which is to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. This book demonstrates our it demonstrates God's holy character to us. It demonstrates to us our total sinfulness, that apart from the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, we have no hope of salvation. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. This book points us to our need for rescue from our sin. It, in- it introduces us to our rescuer, Jesus Christ, and this book guides us into faith in Jesus so that we might be saved from sin. This book is beneficial for completing the believer in salvation. Pray God. This book is also beneficial for completing the believer, making the believer competent for mission. So not just for being saved and being right with God, but also for living out the implications of what it means to be right with God. This wonderful book of books that is God's tells us that God's rescue plan, it tells us God's rescue plan for sinners certainly but it also prepares and trains those who have been rescued by God to join God in his rescue mission. Paul says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We saw last week that the greatest work that we can do with our lives, the the greatest purpose that that we can uh, live for uh, or fulfill in our lives is to glorify God, by bringing other people into a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest thing you can do with your life is to glorify the God who created the universe by bringing people, making disciples of Jesus. And this work, this book makes us competent for that. Knowing that God's word is sufficient and is sufficient uh, for teaching, teaching, Reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and for completing the believer in salvation and in mission, we know that we will become and we will make disciples best, most appropriately, most rightly, as we center our lives on God's Word, Amen. on this sufficient Word, on this capable Word, yeah. on this profitable Word. Turn. Back a few pages in your Bible to Paul's letter to the Colossians. The church in Colossae had several issues. Some of them related to their worship. Some of them related to internalizing or integrating uh, wrong teaching into their life as a church. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, the first part of verse 16, challenges, he exhorts, he encourages the church this way. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let this word, which is about Christ, live in you, make its home in you in a rich, in a substantial, in a deep and meaningful way. We make disciples at First West who know Christ as Lord through His Word and who lead those disciples to let the Word of Christ, to to learn to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in their hearts richly. So I have a challenge for us this year, as a church, a challenge for us this year. Commit this year, 2019, commit this year to know God truly. By allowing the word of God to dwell richly in you. Commit this year. The next, well, we don't have 365, whatever 365 minus 13 is. That many more days. To knowing God truly. To knowing Christ rightly, more deeply, more intimately. Not through devotional books at your local Christian store. Not through the, 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 the latest blog by your favorite spiritual speaker, even if they are a trusted Christian person. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly this year, this word of Christ. Not the words of man about the word of Christ, but let the word of Christ dwell in you richly this year. And come to know Christ rightly, truly, deeper, more substantially as a result of it. Amen. Let this word find its way into you in 2019. Our vision statement is that we make disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word. But that also implies not not only what we're doing in our disciple-making process, but the process we are going through as disciples of Jesus. That every day, more and more, we will be coming into a deeper, fuller understanding of who our Lord and Savior is as we encounter him in this word. As we let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Now, I'm not going to give you a challenge without some help to complete that challenge. And so I want to give you five, uh, I think, practical points for uh, helping you to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in you richly in 2019. First of all, study the Word slowly. Study this Word slowly. And by this, I do not mean that you should read in slow motion. Not just decreasing your words per minute read, although that may help. More than simply reading slowly, studying the word slowly means taking time to understand what you're reading. Make sense of the sentences. Make sure you're following the narrative of whatever passage you may be in. Stop to look up words that you've never seen or don't understand read the footnotes, follow the cross-references, don't skim, slow down. We all know, I hope, that the worst tasting and least nutritious food in all of the world is made in microwaves. I have a microwave in my house. I microwaved a burrito yesterday. I'm not condemning you for having microwaves. I'm just saying it wasn't as good of a burrito as it would have been had I not microwaved it. The worst tasting, least nutritious food is made in microwaves and the blandest and most spiritually shallow Christians are those who try to microwave their knowledge of God by his word. Slow down. Study God's word slowly. Second, study the word well. Study the word well. Now the most important part of studying God's word well, studying it it rightly, is slowing down. That's the first step to take. You can't know, you can't study God's Word well if you don't know what it's saying. So slow down to understand it. But there are a few other ways, very simple questions that you can begin to incorporate into your study of the Bible to help you to understand it and to know God better. First of all, read more than one verse. Read more than one verse. Study at least whole paragraphs, if not chapters. And work your way methodically through whole books of the Bible. When Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God, he does not mean that Scripture is breathed out by God in in 240 character Twitter bites or sound bites that you can uh, pick and choose from at your leisure. Now we live in a world where we communicate in Twitter length responses and comments. It's ridiculous. The deepest and most meaningful things about God cannot be understood in 240 characters. We need sentences. We need paragraphs. We need whole books of the Bible to describe to us in full knowledge who God is. We believe that God inspired these words that are here to us, which means he inspired not only every word, not only every clause and every sentence and and every paragraph, but, but also every whole book. God inspired Genesis... In that order. There's a reason Genesis 50 and the narrative of Joseph Joseph comes after the narrative of Adam and Eve. Not because just historically it appears there, but also because that's the the order in which God intends to reveal it to us. So read God's word in order, in order to study it well. And then learn to ask yourself the basic journalistic reading comprehension questions that we teach our children to ask when they're learning to read. Five W's and one H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Learn to ask those questions of the text. I don't care if you've been a believer for 60 years and you've never done this before and your life is, is, is uh, you feel is fulfilled in Christ. Start doing it. Start asking questions of the text. Who? Who is this scripture? Who is this passage talking about? Who are the characters involved? What? What is happening? What are they talking about? What, what is God communicating to the church through the Apostle Paul? When? When did the events that, that are being described here take place? When in human history did they occur? When is the, the author of, of this particular book of the Bible writing this book? And, and, and what might be going on in, in the world or in the church around that time that helps me to understand what, what uh, the, the prophet or, or the apostle may be saying here? Who, what, when, where? Where is this happening? Where in the world is it? We know that, that nothing in the Bible takes place in the colonies of of, uh, pre-constitutional America, okay? The the place for most of the action uh, in the Bible is in the ancient Near East and and in Europe, in the New Testament primarily, right? So we need to know a little bit about where these things are happening. Uh, What I enjoyed so much last year as we were working through uh, the book of Acts was pulling up from time to time maps that show us where Paul was going, or where these churches were being founded that, that, that he was planting as he went along sharing the gospel, that just that helped me. It, it helped the, the Bible to come more alive to me. and Now I know, you know I can associate places on an actual map, on a real map, with what is going on in Scripture. Who, what, when, where, why. Why is what is being said important? Where does, it, where does the, the purpose of what's being said match up with the other questions we've asked about the text? Why is God saying this to these people at this particular time? And what in the world does it mean for me now, 2,000 years later? Who, what, when, where, why, and then how? Knowing, knowing what I'm able to know by asking those questions. How do I live in obedience to God's word? How do I allow this word to shape my life, my actions, my thoughts, my emotions, and live rightly in light of those things. Third, as you endeavor to study the word well, center your study around the person of God. This is the the first W question, who? Who is this book about? It's primarily about God. The Bible is first and, and most primarily a book about God. So as you read, learn to ask of Scripture, what is this passage that I'm reading saying to me about who God is? Before you ever get to Stephen in the 21st century, first ask, what is God revealing to me about who he is? Because this book is from him and it's about him. It's not first and foremost about me. So if I'm coming first and foremost to learn about me from this book, I'm going to miss it. So let me come to this book and rightly understand who God is first. What can I know of who God is, how he works with people throughout history from what I've read today? You know, Nicholas Copernicus, the 15th, 16th century uh, astronomer, was at first hated and despised for his model of the solar system, which placed the sun and not the earth at the center of our solar system. As time went on, though, other astronomers began to study his model And over the course of time, began to realize, as as, uh, technological advances improved and we were able to understand more about the solar system, astronomers began to understand that the Earth is some 30 times smaller than the sun, and that the Earth's gravitational force is not sufficient to hold the solar system together. Knowing that, they concluded, and rightly so, that the sun must be the center of our solar system, or else everything in our solar system spirals into chaos. Nicholas Copernicus was hated by the scientific community for revealing that what they previously thought about themselves was wrong. Likewise, you may despise me for saying this to you today, but God's word does not revolve around you. Dear friend, you are not the center of God's word. Now you can vote me out as pastor next week or today after service, that's fine. I'm not gonna change my conviction. This book is not about you. You. It is for you. Absolutely. It teaches you things about yourself. No doubt, but it is first and foremost, primarily it revolves around God. So study his word. Well, by seeing that God is at the center of this work, that his redemptive plan for us in Jesus Christ is the focus of this text. And that the orbit of your life is intended to circle God and not the other way around. Study the word well by orienting your thinking on the word around its author and around its central figure. Study the word well by seeing that God is at the center of all of it. Third, so first we're studying the word slowly. We're studying the word well. I want you to study the word with others. I want you to study the Bible with other people this year. Did you notice that almost everything that Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 about the profitability of the scriptures has to do with other people or or people in relationship with one another? Teaching occurs between at least two individuals, a teacher and a student, right? Teacher and a pupil. Reproof is received by one person from someone else. It's hard to reprove yourself when you can't even see your own life rightly. You usually need someone outside of you to bring that. Correction often requires the help of others to show us what we cannot see. Training in righteousness has in mind the kind of personal and even corporate relationship with trainers who themselves have been worked over by the word with others. Training occurs between an, an expert or at least somebody who's experienced and someone who's inexperienced. So this year, I challenge you, read the Word with others. Husbands, read the Bible with your wives. Parents, read the Bible with your children. Men, read the Bible with other brothers in our congregation. Women, you do the same with other sisters in Christ who are following Jesus. Students, you who are in middle school, high school, college, study the Word of God with those who are older and wiser than you. Senior adults, I challenge you to dig in the Word with our students this year and to be energized by their zeal for the mission of God. Member of First, commit, uh, First West, I, I, I invite you this year to commit to studying the Word of God with your faith family this year, with your church family. Join a Sunday morning Bible study group. Sunday school is not a, a, a hokey holdover from a bygone generation right? Sunday school is helpful for teaching us to to learn from other humble teachers. Submitting to God's Word in community with others shows us that we haven't figured it all out yet on our own, and that we can learn from people who are not experts in God's Word, but who are just faithful servants seeking to place God at the center of their study of His Word and at the center of their lives, that they might help others to do the same. Commit to studying the Word of God with your faith family this year by joining a Bible study group. Member of First West, make Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. a weekly non-negotiable. Let me say that again. Make this hour, this time that we spend together on Sunday mornings, a weekly non-negotiable. That is, it is an event on your calendar. It is a commitment that you are making weeks in advance. Commit for the next 48, we don't have that many, 50 Sundays of this year to be here. Unless you can't. Right? If you're traveling, you're out of town. I know work takes several of you out of town uh, on weekends. If you're traveling on a Sunday and you can't be in church because you're on a plane for work, at least study the Word of God at that same time on the plane. Or if you're in another city, either on vacation or for work, over a weekend, find a church to worship at. Make weekly worship with the body of Christ a weekly non-negotiable. That is to say, nothing takes priority in so much as I can help it, over my Sunday morning worship with the gathered body of Christ. Do this knowing, and because you know, that knowing God through studying his word with others is that important. What we do in this room every Sunday morning is that important. You should not miss it. This, what we're doing right now, is commanded to us in Hebrews chapter 10, 25. Do not make it a habit of neglecting to gather together as some have made the habit of doing, the writer of Hebrews says. 2,000 years ago, God inspired someone to write this letter of Hebrews to the church to say, it is not only good, but commanded by God for you to gather together with your church family. So make it a non-negotiable. Study the word with others this year. Fourth Study the word often. Study the word slowly. Study it well. Study with others. Study the word often. Sunday school and corporate worship are good for you. The two and a half, three hours you may spend here on a Sunday morning in Bible study and fellowship with others are good for you in your pursuit of knowing God through his word. It's during those times that we gather and, and hone our tools for Bible study. But listen, two hours, one day a week, are not enough for you to really know God by his word. It's not enough. Now, this word is sufficient to bring you into all knowledge of who Jesus is. But if all the time you spend it is two hours a week on a Sunday morning, that's not enough. If you're depending upon 60 minutes of Bible study, and let's say on the best week, an exceptionally good 45-minute sermon... To allow the Word of God, to, to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in you richly. If you're relying upon 105 minutes of Bible study so that the Word of God can dwell in you richly your whole life to be profitable for all the things that Paul says it is profitable for, then do not be surprised when you find your knowledge of God and of Christ as weak and anemic as that sort of practice would make it to be. You need time in God's word with others on a weekly basis. Yes, corporate worship is commanded in the New Testament. Yes, if you are content though to be spritzed by the word of God here and there, Sunday morning worship will help. But if your heart's desire is to know God deeply and to know Christ truly, then you need not to be spritzed by his word 105 minutes on a Sunday morning, but you need to dive into its depths, uh, uh, the, the depths of God's word often, daily, regularly. Even if you attend both Sunday school and and corporate worship every single Sunday of the year, the time that you spend in God's word will only encompass a measly 1.5% of your waking hours through the year. If your entire commitment to studying God's word, to doing it well and to doing it with others happens only during 105 minutes on a Sunday morning with about a 15 minute break in between, so 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. you will spend only one and a half percent of your waking hours in God's word. By comparison, the average American spends somewhere in the area of 12 and percent of our waking hours simply watching TV. We watch 12 times more. So if you only come to church on Sunday, your only engagement with God's word, excuse me, is on Sunday mornings in, the, in Sunday school and in Bible study, you will watch or you will spend, you will be engrossed in 12 times more television than God's word this year. That's not to condemn. That's not to throw a wet blanket on anyone. That's just reality, okay? Okay. If the word of Christ, though, is to dwell in us richly, to find its home in our hearts in deep, substantial, meaningful, and transformative ways, we must be in the Bible regularly, often, systematically, and thoughtfully. One of the best things that has helped me to be in God's word regularly throughout the whole year is by adopting a Bible reading plan. And we've made two of those available uh, to you as a church this year. Uh, There are some that are out on the welcome desk uh, just as you uh, head out our our west exit here. Uh, One of them is a a year-long study of the Bible chronologically. So It starts in in Genesis, ends in Revelation. Uh, You read five days a week for about 15 minutes a day, and you'll read through the whole Bible in chronological order that way. That I did that plan last year, incredibly helpful for me to, to get in God's Word daily so that I'm at least thinking about things throughout the day, right? Thinking about God's Word throughout the day. Now, maybe 15 minutes a day, five days a week is a lot for you. You're a younger believer or you're a child. You're maybe third or fourth grade and reading that much Bible is kind of a challenge. We have another plan that's for you. It's called the 5x5x5 plan. It comes from Navigators Ministries who have been making disciples and training people to make disciples for decades now. The 5x5x5 plan takes you through the New Testament five days a week in about five minutes a day. You're you're reading a a chapter of the New Testament a day, essentially. And then it teaches you uh, five practices and questions uh, to incorporate into your daily Bible study. So whether you have, you know, 15 or 30 minutes a day to give to Bible reading, or you only have like five minutes a day, or you're just getting started in this whole, uh, you know, making a daily habit of Bible reading, we have plans for you. By the way, just Google Bible reading plan 2019, and you'll find like literally dozens more other plans. Just pick one. Pick one. Find a way to be systematically, intentionally, habitually in God's Word often this year. As we endeavor to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, study the Word slowly, study it well, study the Word with others, study it often. Then finally, let the Word of God read you. Let the Word of God read you. God's Word, which is from Him and about Him, And leads us to faith and submission to Christ the Lord has much to say about us. Now, when we make God the center of our Bible reading, we take ourselves out of the driver's seat of the vehicle of our Bible study. When we rightly place ourselves in submission to God as we study his word, we are we allow ourselves to be taken where he wills, where he wants, to be shown what he wants us to see, to know what he has said that we must know. When we set out to know Christ through his word, we are in effect taking a posture of listening and self-reflection, saying to God, speak, Lord, I'm listening. And when we read slowly and when we read well and when we read with one another and study God's word often, we find ourselves being changed, being shaped, even being transformed by the word of God. And when we look to scripture to know who God is and what he has said, whether we like it or not. We have taken the most critical step in knowing Christ rightly as Lord. When we come to this word and say, God, you speak, even if it offends my sinful personal preferences, you speak. We have taken the first step to knowing Christ rightly as Lord. When we do this, we are holding up the Bible as a, as a mirror to our own souls and saying, God, by who you are, show me who I really am. And, and by what you provide, show me what I really need. We know that looking in a mirror is not always a fun experience, especially if we know that we're unhealthy or, or, or even if we've been somehow disfigured. Sin is unhealthy and spiritually disfiguring. And so you will find that as you really, truly allow the Word of God to read you, as you hold the Word of God up as a mirror to your own life, you will find that your sin is far uglier than you ever let yourself believe. You will find that your heart is grossly deformed in comparison to God's. And this is an incredibly good thing. Do you know why? Because in allowing the word to read you, to show you back a right picture of yourself, you will also find that Jesus, the son of God, has taken the foulness of your sin upon himself. And in his death on the cross, he had his body deformed and his blood shed to beautify your own soul before God. When you allow the Bible to read you, you will find that though you are not who you ought to be, that God's own son exchanged his perfect righteousness for your horrid sin, And as you trust in him, he presents you clean, holy, righteous, forgiven, perfect to God. This word does that. So let the word of God read you in 2019. At First West, we are and we will make disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word. Because only by his word can we know this beautiful, wonderful, compassionate, generous, just, mighty, righteous, and risen Savior, Jesus. This word. This word.